So rereading the tail end of last week's text, Greg, could you read for us chapter 2, starting at verse 19 mm-hmm. through verse 30? Yep, we will do. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So, Just jumping back to where we ended last week, if you look at verse 22, Daniel is praising the Lord. Daniel says of God, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. If you can think about this, um, we all believe that there is general revelation that tells us something about a true God who exists, Romans 1. In fact, the very passage that they're studying right next door right now is this same text where it says, because of creation, we've clearly seen God's attributes revealed. His divine nature, His eternality are clearly seen through the creation. Just like you can look at artwork and learn something about the artist, you can look at God's artwork and learn something about God as the creator. But when it comes to truly knowing the mind of God and truly knowing the future, that can only be granted to us through special divine revelation. That's only through God's special giving of revelation. And just like here, God had to specially give it to Daniel. Well, we today without scripture would ultimately still be blind. We would be without spiritual eyesight, unable to see what is really in front of us. General revelation gives us something, but it does not give us sufficiently to know God truly through Christ. And so just like Daniel thanks God for giving us this special revelation he gets here of the future, we also desperately need God's revealed word inscripturated so that we can also know what is true of God in the details, what is true of us and how much we need Christ. And also, we know the guaranteed truths of what is coming in the future, ultimately a final judgment and of a renewed heavens and new earth. Any thoughts on that idea? All right, we will jump into now today's passage here. Uh, the contrast that you can sort of see between Daniel and Arioch, the king's servants, would someone like to jump in and begin describing the difference here between Daniel and Arioch? I think you see it right away in verse 24. Um, Daniel uh, approaches Arioch, who has apparently the responsibility to destroy the wise men, and 
you know, he could say, well, you can destroy them, but don't, don't destroy me or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know. We, we've got the answer revealed. But he says, don't, he's inter, interceding for them. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, king and I will show the king the interpretation. So right away, he's, he's uh, humbled himself. Um, he's uh, uh, where in, the, in 25, Arioch, uh brought in Daniel before the king in haste, uh, sort of anxious-like, and, and says to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the, I found this Hebrew guy. He's a slave, and, you know, he's going he's gonna to give you the interpretation. Uh, uh, I have found. In other words, it, he, the revelation came from him. No, it came from Daniel, who consulted with his God. And God gave him the interpretation. And, and Daniel had, was kind enough to, to caution Arioch not to destroy the wise men of Babylon because I have the answer given to me by my God. So, Yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's this big contrast here between Arioch's pride and Daniel's humility. Like just what Fred is saying, I mean, he, he tries to take as much credit for this. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't do anything in this. He went to go <laughs> kill Daniel and his friends. He's going to execute the, the king's command, but he's going to go kill them. So he didn't go looking for them to try to find someone who can interpret the dream. No, he went to go kill them. But then he tries to steal as much of the credit as possible, mm-hmm. which uh, one commentator just said, this is the way of, of the world. Uh, pass as much blame for your failures onto other people and claim as much credit as you can for other people's success. But Daniel is so different, which you see that uh, even in verse 28, Daniel says, uh, or even 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. I mean, he's just pushing all of it back to God. He could have taken some praise here, but no, he pushes it all to God. And uh, another commentator, again, uh, said, he said this, he said, we should constantly seek occasions to exalt and declare publicly the praises of our God. We are simply God's servants doing the work he has assigned to us. He deserves all the praise and adoration. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So like everything we have, it, it's a gift. Like our abilities are a gift. So when somebody praises us, we, we want to be quick to turn it back to God. And it, it reminded me of a story from J.I. Packer. We're reading a book about Packer, but uh, Packer was being interviewed by Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in 1999. They have it on YouTube. And in that interview, they're talking about various things. They talk about knowing God. And Packer begins to say how the story took place, and there was a lady who was an editor that basically encouraged him to write. So he's already pushing some credit to her. She pushed him to write these articles, and over five years, he wrote all these articles. Uh, and then he, after five years of writing them, he thought, oh, maybe we can put it into a book. And so they decided to put it into a book. He said, I thought it would be just one published, it would go through one printing, and that would be it. You know, it would help a few people, and that's it. But he said what happened was, he said, God has sent this book around the world. It's been translated to two dozen languages. It's 26 years later. I looked it up. It's sold over 1.5 million copies. He said it's helped all these Christians. And then this is what, what Packer said in, in that interview. I, I just thought this was, was great. He says, to God's praise, be it said, I am just very thankful that he has chosen to use something I've produced in this way. And he said he still gets letters. 26 years later, he was getting letters from people saying, thank you for this book. And he said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's the only thing I can say. So, I mean, that's just how we want to be. We want to turn it back to God, praise God, exalt him when other people praise us. And Daniel is a great example of that here. There, there were two uh, similar kind of story. Don Carson was interviewing two Christians who have since passed away. They were considered great Christians of a previous generation uh, in the 20th century. And he was interviewing them. This is probably 
I mean, at least 30, 40, maybe more years ago. And it, during the interview, they had accomplished so many things. It was, it, it's almost embarrassing to have the list of all their accomplishments read out loud. So Carson's asking them all these questions, and it was kind of a free-flowing interview. He could kind of ask whatever he wanted. And Carson, toward the end, I think it was toward the end of the interview, he finally said, you two men have done more for sort of evangelical Christianity in this country and beyond our country than, than most have, most could even really dream of accomplishing in a lifetime. How do you stay humble? And uh, if I remember correctly, someone may have gotten choked up in the response to the answer, but one of them just sort of blurted out, almost embarrassed by the question, just blurted out and said, how can anyone be, how can anyone be proud standing next to the cross? And I think Daniel doesn't have the cross, right? He's not yet, that has not yet happened yet. He's 500 years before the cross. But still, Daniel knew enough about God's mercy. You'll see that in chapter 9, the way he prays about God's forgiveness for his sins. He understands God's incredible mercy in his life. And to him, it would be a loss of joy to put the spotlight on Daniel. So when the spotlight goes on Daniel, you're the man. Daniel says, there's no joy to be had in putting the spotlight on me. Quick, turn the spotlight where it belongs. There's actual joy to be had in putting the spotlight on God. Pointing the spotlight up rather than pointing it down. And Arioch, all he wants, he's craving any glimmer of reflection of light he can put on himself. So remember, Eric's trying to kill Daniel like you just said. Daniel then says, don't kill me. I'm going to pray to God for the dream. Daniel does 100% of the work humanly. God does 100% by giving it. And then Arioch goes, <clears throat> Sir, Nebuchadnezzar, I found the man who was going to save the day. I mean, he is begging for the light to be on him, even though he deserves none of it. He was trying to kill Daniel when we first saw him. And Daniel, who, humanly speaking, you think he deserves the light, he says, this is going to be no joy for any of us. Daniel goes out of his way to make the point. I mean, look at verse, I mean, you could, any verse. Look at verse 27 again. Daniel answered the king and said, so Nebuchadnezzar says, you can do this. You can interpret my dream. And Daniel says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the king might know the interpretation. So Daniel is doing everything he can to say, I don't want glory. I want to give the glory to the one who, who gave the glory uh, to us. And it reminds me of a C.S. Lewis illustration. Uh, it's, I think he called it, what was it called? Reflections in a Tool Shed. I think that was the only C.S. Lewis could get away with a title like that. Reflections in a Tool Shed. He opened, it was, I guess it was in the evening, he opened the door to his tool shed in his backyard, and he said there was a stream of light from the, from the setting sun coming through the crack in the door, and it lit up all these dust beams, right, in, in front of him. And he said he turned his eye to look into the sunbeam, and his eye was immediately blinded by the glory of the sun through the crack in the door, and then he leaned back, and he saw the golden beam with the, with the dust floating in it. And he said, all the blessings of God, whether God works them through us or through someone else or just common grace or salvation, all the blessings of God, we need to look back up the sunbeam to the sun, to the source of those blessings. And when you eat a good meal, don't just go, that was a good meal. An atheist would say that taste the meal and say, look back through the sunbeam to the sun. What an incredible God who gives this blessing to me who does not deserve this wonderful meal. Or whatever it is, we should always be looking back to the source. And Daniel says, I'm not the point here. Look back to the source. Look back to the son who is the one who gave this to us. Furthermore, in verse 28, there's a profoundness to this verse. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So he is actually taking that point in time till Christ comes again mm -hmm. for the rest of history. So he's revealing not only 
uh, in Joseph's case, there was going to be, uh, you know, lean years and fat years and store up the grain and feed, you know, feed the world. This is the end of time. This is Christ's kingdom coming again. And he, he reveals that in, in the, the latter days to Nebuchadnezzar. Scott, can you read for us the dream and its interpretation? 31 to 45. Sure. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Greg, can you help unpack that? Um, yeah, one thing that really stuck out to me uh, studying this, thinking over this, is we need to read this dream and the interpretation in the context um, and not read later portions of Daniel back into it. Um, and what I mean is, you know, later in Daniel, I think it's chapter 7, um, he, talk, he sees, you know, the vision of the beasts, and you've got one is Babylon, the next one is Medo-Persia, the next one is Greece, the next one is Rome. Um, and what we immediately tend to do is to take what we know clearly there and come back here and say, well, that, that's the same four kingdoms that are being talked about. When in reality, if you just read it in, in the context and let a few of the clues like actually um, speak for what they're saying, speak, speak um, for the text itself, he's not really talking necessarily about the four kingdoms he's going to see later. Um, and I'm still working on some of this. Like that was kind of a new way for me to think. But as I was studying this, um, I, I become a little more convinced because a couple of things um, he says, let me see if I can find it again. Um, he talks about in those days, in those days and in the days of those kings, what kings? Not just the last kingdom, but all the kingdoms he's talking about. Okay, um, and so he's got this vision. Obviously, the only one that's actually identified is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. That's the only one that's actually identified. Daniel is the one who gives the interpretation. So we need to follow Daniel's clue on this, not try to read into it. Um, Daniel is, only identifies Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as the head of gold. 
Um, the rest of these are not identified. And what's interesting, when you think about it, um, he talks about the one that comes after um, Nebuchadnezzar, this, this second kingdom, says it's inferior. Um, inferior things don't conquer greater things. Um, and yet, if, if we were going to read the, the history part from later in Daniel back in, we'd say, well, Medo-Persia was inferior to Babylon, but it conquered Babylon. And so we have to be careful to, to read, I think, the later portions back into this. He's simply saying there's going to be other kingdoms that arise and they're not going to be like yours, Nebuchadnezzar. They're not going to be like yours. Some, one of them's actually going to be inferior to yours. Um, and a third one's going to be like bronze. Um, and then this fourth one is like iron. Everybody knows iron was the strongest of these metals. Um, but the point of it is you've got this, this, this crazy image that if we were to see it, it would frighten us. And the image represents these kingdoms. And the point is at the end, this stone that comes and strikes this image and all the, the, the image falls and it's scattered to the wind. All these kingdoms, um, all these kingdoms will come to an end. And we know it's not just talking about striking the final kingdom because look again at verse 44. In those days, the, in, the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. And so the kingdom of God that Daniel is seeing here, this stone that grows into a whole mountain, it's actually uh, something that is present in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, in the time of the, the, the silver, in the time of the bronze kingdom, and in the time of the iron with, with the feet of iron and, and clay. And so again, I think later on it's clearly talking about, you know, successive kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Here, I think it's just simply showing us that no matter how good your kingdom is, there is only one kingdom in the end that will endure forever, and that's the kingdom of God. And that God raises up kings and he puts down kings. Yes. And, and that's, that's another point of that. Because Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, you think about it. Daniel even says in the way he addresses him, uh, you, O king, the king of kings. I mean, he's recognizing the power and the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. And as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar represents in a sense, all of us and what we could potentially attain in this life, what we could build, the kingdoms we could build. Uh, but the only kingdom that lasts is nothing that is made by man. No matter the intention, no matter how, how noble its founding may be, the only kingdom that lasts forever is not one that man makes. It's the one that God sets up. Yeah, I mean, I think that the people get caught up in like, what are all these toes and what are all these things? And like, you can just get so sidetracked into like trying to guess. Like Alistair Begg comes back to like, keep the main things, the plain things. He just said that. He said he maybe wants it on his tombstones, keep the main things, the plain things. Like you get, he said he got caught up in all that stuff as a new Christian. He got caught in all this like, where, where are you getting this? You're going away from the text and you're trying to guess, well, come back to the main things. Well, God's going to build his kingdom. Like all earthly kingdoms are going to be shattered. I think that's the, the big thing. Like history is going somewhere. God's going to build his church essentially. Uh, and don't get like, see, he, like Vody Bakken talked about not getting so obsessed. People get so obsessed with like elections coming up. Not that they're not important, but he said, well, if we lose this election, you know, it's the end of everything. It's <laughs> like, no, it's just not true. Like God's going to build his kingdom. Keep that eternal perspective. God's going to build his kingdom. Uh, don't get like awed about earthly power, like how quickly it's fleeting. Like Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And then Kevin DeYoung said in a few short decades, he's going to be crumbled. It's going to be taken away. 
And he said, uh, Bodhi said, you know, it's, it's good to like be thankful for your country. He said, I love my country. He said, it's fine to say God bless America. He said, but America's going to get the stone. Like America's going to get crushed. It's going to be chaff on the ground, going to get blown away. Like even keeping the proper perspective. But Alistair Begg was so good in his book on this. He said this, I got to quote this, a few, several sentences. He said, your church may seem small as you drive to meet with the household of God on a Sunday. You may pass hundreds of houses whose inhabitants give not a thought to what you are doing, except politely or not so politely to deride it. It may feel little, but the kingdom of God is unsmashable and it has an embassy in your neighborhood that we call the local church. Don't be discouraged as you meet. Instead, commit to it. Serve your church family. Give yourself to it because when the Lord builds his church, either a number of maturity through our labors, gifts and giving, we are being used to build the only kingdom that will last forever. So give yourself to this kingdom. It may feel small, but it is never in vain for this kingdom is eternal and it is God's. So I just thought that is just what a great reminder to give yourself to the church. This is the kingdom. Christ is going to build his church. It's forever. No, and it, it makes me think of... Uh things, I mean, a lot of these, sta- a lot of this chapter you'll hear later in the New Testament, people picking up on uh, different aspects of it. Um, I got to find the right verse here. Uh, you, you'll often, Jesus will talk about, um, I think I'm in the wrong book. I'll, I'll just quote it. Uh, Jesus talks about the parable of uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, um, it's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed. You put it in the garden, it looks completely inconsequential, completely insignificant. Who cares about this tiny, tiny little seed? And before long, it becomes the largest tree in the garden. It becomes, it, birds of the, the heavens come and nest in the branches. Um, it, it's also leaven that, that a woman puts in. And over time, the leaven, which seems small, ends up taking over and creating, a, transforming this loaf entirely. Similarly, um, and again, I, I'm with you. Sometimes it can be foggy exactly on what part means exactly what in the future. But e- even taking the interpretation that the, that the feet uh, include the Roman Empire, even if that is the interpretation, the stone arrives during the Roman Empire, and even when it arrives, Jesus does not look like he's going to overturn in much anything. People are looking for him to overturn Rome, and he doesn't seem to do it, right? He, he's crucified by the Romans. looks like his mission has failed. On, in, on the, you know, the day of the resurrection, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. They're going, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. looks like he's not going to do it, and Jesus is talking to them. Well, what happens is the kingdom starts really small. It's 120 people in an upper room, after the crucified Messiah has reappeared and gone to heaven, that's pretty inconsequential compared to, say, Rome or compared to, say, the entire world. And yet, even though they're outnumbered by the millions, today Rome is gone. And today, Christianity is the most widely held religion in the world. A couple of billion people in some form or another at least claim to be Christians. So, you know, you could dispute a lot of those claims, but at least you have two billion people saying that they are followers of Christ in one way or another. So what you saw was this stone arriving and looking inconsequential, and it's kind of like a David and Goliath moment. You know, it's, it's, Jesus is sort of the, the, the messianic David figure, and it's all the kingdoms of the world are the Goliath. There's no way David and his little stone are going to do anything to that. And yet that one stone conquers the giant. And similarly, Jesus showing up in his first coming, looking inconsequential over time, all the other kingdoms are going to crumble under his feet. And he's going to be the, the stone that, uh, you know, in the New Testament that is talked about. If, if you'll turn, hold your spot, go all the way to the back of the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2. I thought this was a good text where Peter just emphasizes this idea of Jesus being the stone. And it's picked up many times in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah. Uh, it's in Psalm 118. It's, it's all over the place. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, even we are called stones in this text, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in scripture. And here's, here's some of the Old Testament texts. Behold, I am laying in Zion. This is God laying Jesus, right? I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So you see there, Christ is either a rock that we trip over and are ultimately crushed by, or he is a rock that we submit ourselves to, we believe in, we trust in, and we are not put to shame. But the corner, you know the cornerstone, right? Cornerstone was that, that was that was the, when they built, it was the first stone laid in the corner of the building and every other stone was laid in relationship to the angle of that stone. So it was the standard of measurement. Once the cornerstone is put down, now we know where all the edges of the building are going to be because we have to go with the corner. You can't disobey the cornerstone. It's going to make the building fall apart. So the cornerstone is the standard of everything else. And we are then built as living stones on this temple that, that Christ is building uh, in the new, uh, through, the, uh, through the work of Christ in the gospel. So we can flip back to Daniel 2. I think uh, an application thing is we're going back there, something to consider. We kind of mentioned this, but I want to make sure we, we make it clear. Um, you know, man is going to do his best to set up um, his own kingdom. And, you know, to some extent as Christians, we are going to be involved in that process of like the nations we live in, trying to make society better. And we absolutely should, especially in the context we have here in the U.S., you know, where we can vote, we have a voice, we can be active, we can be engaged. Uh, but we have to remember that we can't build the kingdom of God no matter how hard we try, like through political structures. We can't make the kingdom come. We can't set up God's kingdom here on earth. That is going, we, we see the kingdom, I, I like the quote, like the church is an embassy of the kingdom. We're kind of like an outpost of the kingdom here, but we're looking forward to the day when Jesus comes and establishes it. And I think we have to remember that because so many today almost act like that if we just get involved enough and we put the right policies in place, we're gonna usher in the millennium. We're gonna usher in the reign of Christ and this, 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 this experience of public righteousness. Um, and at, ver at the very best, even drawing from the language of how things are mixed, it will only be a mixed bag. We cannot establish a perfectly righteous kingdom in which everyone acts justly there and there's perfect laws and all, like it's just not going to happen. The perfect kingdom that we long for will only come when Jesus comes back. Yeah, and I like how you're balancing that. We, we, we do care about the, the common grace of God in the world mm -hmm. and, and making the world a better place. It, like healing diseases, helping people with food preparation, all these different things we yeah. may do. Uh, but those things are not going to make the world utopia, okay? It's not going to usher in those. Those things do not have that effect in a fallen right. world. And so we should have realistic uh, expectations. I think one of the things that gets us is we, we tend to overestimate or underestimate what we can do in those mm -hmm. realms. And people who overestimate what you can do through uh, politics and whatever it may be, and those things matter, but people who overestimate that tend to start leaving the gospel behind and leaving and, and only doing social movements. So like, you know, the, the, the social gospel movement of the last century, it was basically people saying, listen, doctrine is offensive, the exclusivity of Christ is offensive, and a bloody cross and atonement, nobody wants to hear that. But if we help poor people, if we help people out, if we do acts of deeds and service, if we do that, people are going to really respond to that. It's going to do a lot of good. So the social gospel ended up leaving out the gospel. It was just the social it wasn't the social gospel. They left out really the, the core doctrines and they ended up having just a movement that was no longer Christian. And so they were overestimating what they could do in that realm and underestimating what the gospel itself uh, could do. You know, another example of what you're talking about starting small and, and, and becoming large is the, um, the spread of Christianity um, in the first mm -hmm. two, three hundred years. Uh, a lot of people credit Constantine. No, no, no. 
Christianity was a power already, was an influence in the whole Mediterranean world because of Paul and because of the disciples and because of the church fathers spreading the gospel. Uh, they were persecuted. There were heresies. Some of the worst heresies, which we still enjoy today, were birthed during mm -hmm. that same period of time. So in spite of that, Christianity grew and became strong, and, and Constantine even recognized it as a unifying force for his kingdom. Not that I don't, um, you can debate all, all day long whether or not he was a believer, but he also recognized it was a stabilizing power by the time, by 325, the Council of Nicaea. So. And I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked, but this is just something to think about. Every, every other religion other than Christianity, so far as I know, wherever it started and it, it, wherever it kind of gained traction originally is still the, the, the home base of that religion. So if you think about Islam in the Middle East, if you think about uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, when you think of India and China and these different places, where, where they began is where they still are dominant to this day. Christianity is the only world religion that continues to move its home base. So it started obviously in Israel, in the, in the Palestinian area. It moved to the entire Roman world, it took the Mediterranean basin. It took over enormous areas there, thanks to Paul's missionary journeys and many other people. And then it moved north up into Europe, right? It was dominant in Europe for, what, a thousand years. And a lot of that was very corrupt. We know that. But still, it was a dominant force there. It moved over to North North America. It became dominant in North America. It is now dying in Europe, right? We're, they're they're post-Christian in Europe. We're becoming post-Christian right here, if you haven't been able to tell. And, and it has now moved where? South America and Africa. It has blown, the gospel has exploded in sub-Saharan Africa. My mom, you know, grew up as a missionary kid in Africa in the 19, uh, I probably shouldn't say what decade, she probably wouldn't like that, but a while back. And uh, she was there in Africa, in the Congo. And it, it, Christianity was not such a dominant force. Missionaries were flooding into the area, but it was not Christianized yet. Well, today, sub Sub-Saharan Africa is incredibly Christianized at this point. Uh, now, Northern Africa has turned more Muslim in recent decades, which is, which is tragic. But then China has also had, as, as, as horrible as the persecution has been, and it's been intensified in the last few years. I know missionary friends who've had to come out of China because of the persecution going on there that's been intensified. There's still a massive movement, underground movement largely, of, of millions and millions of people converting there. So what you're seeing, again, are you seeing this tiny rock who is now what? It's becoming a mountain that's taking over the world. You, you, you are seeing God's kingdom spread like that tiny seed to, to become a, a, a tree that, that the birds uh, nest in the branches. Yeah, one quick little brief thing that Kevin Young said that I thought was helpful, like a creative way to put this to help us remember, remember this, that Jesus is going to crush everything. Basically, He said, Jesus, the carpenter, makes a coffin for every earthly king and kingdom, for they all pass away. I just thought that was really helpful. Jesus wow. the carpenter makes a coffin for every earthly king and kingdom. It just helps us to remember what, what's going to happen. Again, keeps that eternal perspective going. Uh, what is to come? God's going to build his kingdom. Turn to the left. Uh, is it the left? To Psalm 1. Yes, it is the left. Psalm chapter 1 and 2. I know we mentioned this recently, but just to look at this real quick, I think Sinclair Ferguson pointed this out. Because you can hear Daniel's words uh, being echoed here, uh, or Daniel really echoing the words from these Psalms. Look at uh, Psalm 1, just read a part of, part of it here. Verse 1 of the first, book of, uh, first chapter of Psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You can think of Daniel and his friends. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do, do you hear that? The, like chaff that the wind drives away? That's that giant statue that the whole world was bowing down to and worshiping, right? This is, this is what it's all about, the kingdoms of this world. It collapses and it turns to chaff and the wind blows it away and there's not a trace left. I mean, when you think about media and you think about politicians today, you, it feels like they really matter. I mean, it really feels like they matter. And there's coming a day when not a trace of those kingdoms will be left. It will be Jesus, only Jesus, always Jesus. His kingdom will have no end. It will be the universal kingdom. It will, it will get rid of all the other kingdoms. It will never fade. It will never fall apart. And it, it is stable. Chapter 2, similarly, talks about the anointed one, which ultimately is Jesus. Look at verse... Um, uh, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in, vessels, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And on it goes. But you see there this emphasis on the dominion one day that Christ will have. Uh, let's flip back to Daniel 2. Well, as we get towards the, uh, the last section here, chapter 2, um, again, going back to the, the kingdoms of men, um, you know, you look at, at these kingdoms and especially like the, the image of iron, you know, that breaks everything. You know, what man can do can seem very scary and very intimidating. The, the power of man, the, the authority that he can gain, the following that, that a ruler or government can get. Um, you know, you think of the, the technology they might have to wield, the, the size of their army and, and all of that. And it can be quite terrifying from an earthly perspective. And one of the things I think God is doing and giving us this passage is helping us remember, no matter how terrifying they may seem, they are going to crumble to dust when God decides it's time. Um, and so they are only as powerful as God permits them to be. They can, they can do no more, go no further, conquer no more than God permits in the time God gives them. And so preach this to yourselves when you look at the world that you're in. When we see the world around us and we're like, you know, we, we tend to want to be almost undone, afraid, you know, whatever. Remind, we need to remind ourselves all that we see with our eyes is going to be crushed. God's going to do it. And there's nothing that the kings of men and their armies can do to stop it. You think of the end of the Bible, Revelation 18. All the kings of the world are represented by Babylon, right? And what, what does it say? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In a single hour, her glory is gone. And then you have what? A new heavens and a new earth, the new Jerusalem where righteousness reigns forever and Christ returning on a white horse to, to bring judgment and salvation, uh, judgment to his enemies and salvation to his bride. But clearly we've got to have that mindset as we think about the uncertainties of this world, the craziness of all that's going on constantly. Um, I think Spurgeon said, if I read the newspaper too much, I know we, we don't really read the newspaper these days, but Spurgeon said, I find, this is in 1860-something, he said, uh, I find the newspaper 
incredibly discouraging to my soul. Just keeping up with the ever-present, every 30 minutes there's a new news cycle, right? It changes like every second. Here's the latest thing that happened. Here's the latest, it's always what? Breaking news. Like how many times can we break the news here, okay? Uh, it's always something urgent, shocking. You won't believe it. Oh, just now we just figured, oh, unbelievable. Just released. And, and at the end of the day, uh, Spurgeon says, let's get, let's get our eyes a little bit off of that and far more on what is eternal, what is certain, and what our, our souls can find stability in. Scott, can you pray for us? Yeah, I can pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again to be able to study uh, this uh, book of the Bible, Daniel, in chapter 2, and uh, just so thankful for all the application that there is in, in this chapter that I've been struck by. We're, we're thankful for this comparison, really, with Daniel's humility and Ariok's pride. And Father, uh, if we're honest, I think all of us would admit there's probably a little bit of Ariok in every single one of us that wants to steal praise and wants to exalt ourselves. So Father, help us to be humbled. Help us to remember, as Mark said, how can we be proud when we stand next to the cross? So help us make regular trips to the cross and help us to be humbled afresh as we come to the cross and uh, realize our sin and realize the love that Christ has shown us. And I pray that that really would uh, generate genuine, deep humility in us. And then when people do praise us and uh, lift us up, I pray that we would be quick like Daniel to exalt you, to publicly exalt you, to praise you, to, to point all the praise back to you like Jaya Packer did about his, his book. Uh, you know, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray that, that would, uh, you'd produce that humility and help us to be quick to praise others. And Father, help us to give ourselves to the local church. Uh, help us to have an eternal perspective that you're, you're going to build your kingdom. Uh, it is certain and sure Christ is the rock. He's going to crush every kingdom. Help us not to get so caught up in in uh, even political things and, and so worried about them, but help us to have an eternal perspective that, you know, Jesus the carpenter is going to build a coffin for every earthly king and kingdom. And I pray that that would give us stability and strengthen our faith in our lives and, and help us to be lights in this world uh, to those around us. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.